Welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I'm a penny. Joining me is Liz, who's tuppence. So, together do we make a threepence? I think we stopped making sense a long time ago. <laughs> Our book this month is Making Money, the story that confirms for everyone who didn't already know that Moist von Lipwick is a bottom. <laughs> It's canon now. I was excited that it was going to be another moist book, not a wet book, but <laughs> um, like the last one was a lot of fun and it'd be a nice change from the Witches series and the Watch series. So I was excited to get into it. Well, then let's get right on into it. Originally published September 20th, 2007 and coming in at 95,000 words, Making Money is the 36th Discworld novel and second in the Moist von Lipwick series. The story is peppered with references to the board game Monopoly, only missing the race car and the railroads. The part about how each coin costs significantly more to make than it is worth is a reference to a real aspect of producing currencies, such as the American penny and nickel. And the Golem language, as written in the story, is comprised of Hebrew characters arranged to phonetically spell out English words, which presumably got changed in the Hebrew translation of the novel. <laughs> when Making Money was first published in the UK, the hardcover edition came with one of two bonuses, depending on where you purchased it. At Borders, you could get a novelty checkbook, while Waterstones included a couple of Ankh-Morpork banknotes. The audiobook, read by Stephen Briggs, lasts 11 hours, with an abridged version read by Tony Robinson lasting 4 hours and 45 minutes. Briggs also adapted the story for the stage, and at the time of recording, the most recent production was in 2021 by Brisbane Arts Theatre. The book was a runner-up for the 2009 Nebula Award, and it won the 2008 Locus Award. The story begins with the aftermath of a negotiation between Adora Bell Deerheart and the Low King of Dwarves. Adora is the human face of the Golem Trust, an organization of golems who use the wages of their labor to purchase other golems out of propertydom. Why she is here, renting a large section of land, is not yet revealed to the reader, although the lawyer involved in the proceedings does point out that she can't take anything out of the ground without paying a tax to the Low King. Forgive me a weird comparison, this reminds me a lot of the plot from the movie Quantum of Solace, <laughs> which was released almost exactly 13 months after this book's publication. Uh, in that story, the bad guys purchase a section of land despite being advised that there's no oil there, and it's revealed that they are actually purchasing control of the country's water supply. What's happening here is not really the same, but it's not that different either. Yeah, there's enough similarities for it to be a little, like, a, a little confounding. Probably drawing from the same, like, source material, right? The same, yeah. like, world events and things. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. <laughs> Far away from Adora, which is a source of frustration for him, we join <laughs> Moist von Lipwig. Currently, he is climbing up the exterior of the post office, keeping in practice from his former life as a notorious criminal. The City Watch spot Moist's attempted break-in and try to corner him, but he manages to outwit them with careful use of misdirection, primarily by breaking into his own apartment in the building. Not to get too, like, armchair editor this early in the story, but I kind of wish that Moise had changed into one of his signature golden suits rather than a dressing gown. It would have helped establish that after for what happens later. Yeah, and especially since one of Moise's 
talents is like disguising himself. And granted, he makes it seem like that's relatively easy for the way he naturally looks. But if he could like do quick costume changes much faster than we could assume anybody could do them, like that's a great little like personality trait. Yeah, it would make sense. So at breakfast, Moist is reading a newspaper article about a master stamp forger being sentenced to execution when a number of goons arrive to inform the postmaster that he has an urgent appointment with the, the ruler of the city, Lord Vetinari. So, you know, just hired goons. <laughs> the patrician congratulates Moist on how the post office has become magnificently efficient and a boon to the city. Effective enough that Moist might be getting bored and entertaining himself by breaking and entering, among other risky past times. Who among us doesn't eventually pick up a B&E habit? <laughs> Apparently one of Moist's dangerous hobbies is extreme sneezing, which got brought up a couple times and we never get to see. Although yeah, I kind of like... don't want to. <laughs> I don't know. I think I need my curious. I think I need my curiosity satiated on that one. <laughs> Also, there's a reference to a lewd stamp with a punchline that took me way too long to get. Uh, it's that what few copies of the stamp still exist are affixed to a plain brown envelope, such as the kind that lewd magazines are distributed inside of. <laughs> I feel like that's a very specific piece of information from a very specific time. Yeah, but I mean, like, I don't think Playboy is going anywhere anytime soon, to be honest. No, I, I think they're doing all right for themselves. Yeah. So, Vetinari has a new job offer for Moist, managing the Royal Bank and the adjoining Mint. Moist is hesitant, but Vetinari insists on him taking a tour first. There, Moist meets the chief cashier, Mr. Bent, who is opposed to the very idea of humor. Assisting him is the senior clerk, Miss Drapes, who Moist quickly realizes has a crush on her boss. This bit is a great example of how well Vetinari knows people since he's like, okay, yeah, you're saying you're not interested, but just come and I promise you, like, your interest will be piqued at least. Eventually, Moist is taken upstairs to meet Topsy Lavish, nay Turvey, the chairman of the bank. <laughs> She's an ornery old woman who immediately identifies Moist as a swindler and scoundrel and just as quickly decides that she likes him. After introducing Moist to her dog, Mr. Fusspot, she tells him about the family she married into. The Lavishes are the primary shareholders of the Royal Bank, and are almost exclusively vicious, greedy, conniving, and cruel. Topsy has been staying alive largely to spite them and to ensure the welfare of her nephew. Yeah, I think it's a lot easier to like a criminal when you're able to spot them a mile away. <laughs> yeah, and also when you recognize that they're not like actually that bad of a person yeah the lavishes on the other hand are like actively trying to steal her money and maybe her life so that nephew mentioned earlier hubert lives in the cellar of the royal bank and the description of his appearance paints him as the love child of dr bunsen honeydew and beaker <laughs> excellent <laughs> hubert is a mad economist <laughs> And along with his assistant, Igor, he's intent on creating a device that can perfectly replicate the flow of currency throughout the city, measuring the interplay of various economic factors to determine various effects. In demonstrating the power of his glooper, Hubert illustrates for Moist the utility of banks. Without a centralized place for people to save their money and get loans, the city's economy grinds to a halt as everyone stops spending. Mm-hmm. 
minor quibble here. Uh, later on, Moist looks up the lavish family history in a book. This is the tiniest continuity grip I've ever pointed out. <laughs> but throughout the series, the definitive text about the important people of Uncle Park has been Twerp's Peerage, which is a reference to the real-life book of English nobility, Burke's Peerage. Twerp and Burke are both slang. Now, however, Moist looks up the lavishes in the book Who's Whom. Now, there's no rule saying that Discworld can only use the same small number of, like, world-building elements. But I feel like there was a missed opportunity to make, like, a joke about some comparison between the two books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially because, like, okay, we have the old version of this book, the Twerp's Peerage. So, like, what's this new book about? Is it from, like, I don't know, maybe the Times has gotten into, uh, like, gossip work? Maybe. I kind of want there to be like a Hitchhiker's Guide reference. Just like it has surpassed <laughs> Torp's Peerage by being slightly cheaper and having the words, I don't know, you'll never live like this printed in yeah. large friendly letters on its cover. <laughs> yeah, that would have been excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Elsewhere, we see a sinister person who seems to recognize Moist's photograph in the newspaper. And the narration draws special attention to the man's teeth, 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 teeth. <laughs> uh, I'll say now that I think he's insufferable, which I think is yeah. the point, but... <laughs> yeah. Does it make it an easier pill to swallow? Back at the post office, Moist gets a message from Adora about her imminent return, which makes him happy, even if the actual language she uses is cold and minimal. <laughs> Still, you can tell there's love in there because she signs it using an abbreviation of his pet name for her, Spike. I like the fact that despite Adora is a very, like, straight-to-the-point kind of woman, very no-nonsense, like, she's still got a nice, like, warm affection for Moist, and, you know... I think a lot of the Discworld books don't necessarily focus on romance, even the ones that have them in it, but you can still see that they care for each other in this. I like how you say she's no nonsense, but like he is kind of all nonsense. <laughs> yeah, it's balance itself out. <laughs> yeah. Moist's lunch is prepared and delivered by Gladys, one of the golems employed by the post office, who has taken on the role of his assistant. Uh, two quick things about this character. First is that she is the latest in a series of Discworld characters who exemplify the idea that gender and other aspects of one identity is performative rather than inherent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, especially since a lot of what Gladys's understanding of gender is is from what the women around her are saying and acting and the books that they're giving her to read about gender. The second thought I had about her is that it's a weird coincidence how we have Gladys, who's functionally a robot, and just a few weeks after this book was published, we would get Portal featuring the AI character GLaDOS. <laughs> yeah, it feels like there are a lot of things about this book that it's like, yeah, the time was just right for all these things to happen in a myriad of places. Again, like, it's not really impossible for someone to have, like, read this book and decided to change GLaDOS's name, like, because, like, she's never addressed by name. Mm -hmm. So it would just be a matter of, like, uh, having one 2D texture on a single surface. But also mm -hmm. just, like, video games take a lot of work and there's a huge amount of time between when they're finished and when they actually get released. So yeah, it's unlikely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, like, in case anyone was thinking along those lines. So Gladys also informs Moist that Lord Vetinari is here to see him. 
and Moist turns down the offer of bank manager. But that night, Topsy Lavish dies, bequeathing her controlling interest in the bank to Mr. Fusspot, and ownership of the dog to Moist. So, with a new pet enforced by a massive contract from the Assassin's Guild, Moist takes on his new challenge. Yeah, it's like one way or another, somebody's gonna, like, nudge things so that he ends up in charge of the bank. I do also still appreciate how the narrative makes it abundantly clear that Vetinari is not behind that at all. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't really jive with the character as we've come to know him, but, like, you know, it doesn't hurt to be clear about that. Yeah, especially because, like, Vetinari is a character, like, he's a tyrant, he admits he's a tyrant, but he could very easily cross the line into unlikable if we feel he has too much control in ways that, like, hurt the narrative overall you know like if he's just like a deus ex machina and he can just like make things happen whenever he wants them to happen that's a lot less interesting than him being like i can nudge some things and i can do other things and some things are just completely out of my control he actually says it himself that tyrants don't really have to obey the law but he at least observes the niceties yeah mm-hmm yeah, so there's some sort of uh, decorum we expect with him about how he acts with the other characters. Along the way to the bank, Moist is confronted by Cosmo Lavish, a stepson to Topsy, who offers to buy Mr. Fosspot. When Moist declines, Cosmo gives him a not-so-veiled threat before sending him on his way. He was fine. Like, I think he makes a lot of sense with his background being the villain of this story. I got big vibes from him of the... Witch's book where it's the one that with the Macbeth references and I've com- been completely blanking on the title uh, for the past couple days. I'll give you a hint. Uh-huh. It's our title too. Oh, is it the Weird Sisters? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, in Weird Sisters, like there's the husband lord person who is very obsessive to the point of like delusion. And Cosmo just kind of feels like a little bit of a rehash of that. A little bit, but also with more fat jokes, which yeah, which this series is still doing. Like, mm-hmm. they stopped being funny for me ages ago. But also, like, well, you know, early 2000s was, like, still probably, it was so common, but it wasn't mm-hmm. funny back th- even back then. Yeah, and this series has been typically so good about acknowledging the, like, differences and strengths and beauty in different kinds of people that it's, like insistence on fat jokes feels very out of place yeah Cosmo is definitely not my favorite villain we've had in a desperate story partly because he reminds me of stuff i dislike about myself Mm. like his whole deal is that he wants to become lord veterinary like not just replace him as patrician but physically transform into him which is complicated by the fact that both he and his sister are individuals of carriage. It's doubly frustrating that this is the case because Cosmo also has like a legitimate personality flaw that makes him more villainous. He doesn't actually understand Vetinari and he's trying to imitate the version that he has made up, who is far more bloodthirsty than the real thing. Mm -hmm. This delusion leads Cosmo to be manipulated by his manservant, heretofore who's been scamming his boss by claiming to be paying thieves to steal things from the real veterinary so that Cosmo can use them to absorb the essential veterinariness. 
mostly heretofore is paying to get fakes made and pocketing the difference. This becomes a plot point when he gets Cosmo a ring made of Stygium, which is basically Vanta Black Metal. <laughs> I've tried listening to Vanta Black Metal, but I can't see the appeal. <laughs> I was just thinking, that's a great, like, album name. Yeah. So, unfortunately, the fat jokes come back into play here because the ring is too small for Cosmo, and he forces it uh, onto his finger anyway, and mm -hmm. that comes back and is gross. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Back with Moist, he arrives at the bank and has an interview with Sakharisa Crisplock, reporter for the Ankh-Morpork Times. She manages to prod him into promising big changes for the future of the bank, including a bold claim that he's planning to get rid of the gold that is the basis for the city's currency, and now soon enough he's going to be giving away money. <laughs> I really like Sakharisa in these books because it's very clear that her and Moist are playing a game and that they know they're playing a game. But they're both just, like, having so much fun with it that they keep doing it. Yeah. She, like, literally says that he's no fun anymore because he got serious. Yeah. <laughs> but also, just, like, interesting that this story, like, uses gold as the foundation of, like, the Ankh-Morpork currency. Because, like, Ankh-Morpork is largely a parody of, like, London. Mm -hmm. But, like, Britain uses silver and... The narrative specifically calls out silver as, like, something they do in foreign countries. Yeah, that's a little weird. I mean, like, probably it's gold is, a, is associated with wealth, and, like, that's a major theme throughout the story. Mm hmm Yeah. This book gave me a lot of thoughts about money, but I don't, I don't think this is the time to get into it. In his office, Moist tries to figure out how to make good on that insane promise. Looking at the note he got from Cosmo, he comes up with the idea of replacing the standard Ankh-Morpork dollar coin with paper money. He designs a couple of prototype bills and takes them for testing out into a poorer commercial district, where the merchants are initially suspicious. Of course, as Postmaster, Moist inadvertently made stamp collecting into a huge trend, and so people are eager to see how he turns this into another big craze. They eventually decide that paper money is probably as good as what they're used to, but Moist is unable to persuade them that it retains value regardless of the gold in the bank vault. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it says a lot about uh, Moist like, standing in the Ankh-Morpork community where he can convince people to even like give this a shot. Like, People do really trust him for what he's done to the post office. And yeah, he may think like it's all kind of like a persona he's putting on, but... You know, there's a, a core of genuineness in there. Very true. After his field test, Moist gets into a taxi where he meets Poochie Lavish, stepdaughter of Topsy and, and twin sister to Cosmo. She set up a honey trap to destroy his reputation, paying a photographer to capture the two of them together while she is in a state of undress. Fortunately for Moist, he evades this snare by immediately leaping out the cab window <laughs> before any photos are taken. And he runs back to the bank. Moist uh, midnight excursions climbing the exterior of buildings uh, has some real life use here. Got <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really into parkour. The next morning, after recovering from Gladys's misguided attempt at giving him a back rub, Moist finds a distressed Mr. Bend yelling at him about the crowd of people outside who want to open accounts and take out loans. To Mr. Bent's horror, Moist changes the bank's regulations to make it much more accessible for the layperson. We do get a couple characters that we haven't seen in a while, namely uh, Harry King, who's like basically the man running the sewer system, 
as well as cut me on throat Dibbler, who wants to basically open up a chain of restaurants. So that's a thing. Yeah, it's fun to see these characters just pop in for little tidbits of things that like actually would be meaningful to them. While Moist is working the crowd, Poochie returns and calls out the prototype dollar bills as fake money, asking if anyone here would actually give her a dollar in exchange for this piece of paper. The crowd immediately starts bidding on the bill, offering as much as $30 for what they suspect will be a collector's item. Out of frustration over not getting her away, Poochie destroys it, only for, for Moist to start auctioning off another such bill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what's funny? I, maybe I just missed something, but... Paper money was an, introduced as a thing in the Agatian Empire back in interesting times. Oh, yeah. wow, I'd like completely forgotten about that. Yeah, but like, I don't think that gets mentioned in this one. Yeah, I don't think it does. I mean, like, Mr. Bent mentions, like, the term note to mean a unit of currency. So, like, the concept definitely exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it can make sense. Like, we don't know how much Moist knows about the world at large outside of Ankh-Morpork. Um, so maybe he doesn't know what paper currency is. Yeah, fair. By consulting with his go-to printing company, Moist learns that he needs a real artist to turn his initial sketches into something both memorable and difficult to counterfeit. But the best person for the job is Owlswick Jenkins, the stamp forger currently on death row. So Moist stages a jailbreak, and after a brief interlude where Owlswick runs away and does the dirty hairy bit with a tube of paint, Moist brings him to live with Hubert in the bank cellar. I'm glad that this is what happens with Owlswick because he gets mentioned earlier in the book and it just feels so tragic and it's like, I'm, I'm glad that that's not actually how his story ended. Yeah, I will say I'm not really a fan of the whole trope of neurodivergent artists getting their skill from emotional turmoil, which we see being uncritically represented in the scene where Igor transplants Owlswick's issues into a turnip. Although turnip is a very funny word to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a plus word. Yeah. Give it a shot at home. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's a bit like a tired thing to do. And it feels, especially since that is a trope that is being done by artists almost always. It feels weird to continue to perpetuate this thing that is ultimately kind of destructive to your art. Yeah. At least it is for me. Yeah. But like also, people use Van Gogh in that discussion a lot. And just like, Van Gogh did some of his best work while he was like actually on medication. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's not accurate, if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah, it's like hard to be productive at the thing you love if you're struggling just to like get through the day. Mm-hmm. Also, since we've brought up Hubert again, we may as well mention here that the glooper has sort of turned into an artifact of sympathetic magic for the finances of the entire city. Basically, a voodoo doll for money. (laughs) I like how complicated and nonsensical the glooper sounds whenever they talk about it, because that's how the economics feels to me in real life. Yeah. Right about now is also where Moist has a run-in with Cribbins, the sinister con man, who we saw recognize Moist's photograph earlier. Now that his old partner has made it big, Cribbins has come back and will presumably blackmail him soon. However, that concern is largely displaced by the return of Adora, who insists on visiting the Unseen University. Oh yeah, also, another thing that I was like mostly just middling on, but I think uh, frustrated some of our contemporaries on the Death of Podcast, mm-hmm. uh, Cribbins has false teeth that... He stole from a guy, and 
I don't know. Do you think that denture jokes are either like extremely funny or extremely not funny? I think at this point, I'm just a little tired of them. Like, because it just feels like they're always kind of the same joke. It's whatever to me, I guess. Yeah. I don't think we've had any of them in in like a while. Because I don't think they were in The Last Hero. Or yeah, I don't think so. It's just only one joke. Yeah, it's like, oh no, they're clumsy or whatever. But like, I don't know. It's just very worn out in my opinion. It's not something I'm going to like... It's not a hill I'm going to die on, but I'm not for it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So their first stop is investigating an artifact known as the Cabinet of Curiosities, which Adora once saw as a child. One of the objects inside is the foot of an ancient golem, which Adora compares to an arm that she retrieved on her expedition. Noting that the markings on the two are the same, or at least very similar, she insists on finding someone who can translate it. They find an expert by going down to the Department of Post-Mortem Communication and speaking with the belated Professor Fleed. Moist is indignant when the ghost flirts with Adora and astonished when she flirts back. Later, she clarifies that she just needed to get him to agree to do the translation, and Moist can suck it up for five minutes, since she tolerates his modus operandi of flirting with the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she goes on to explain that during her excursion, she found a number of golems from a lost ancient civilization, and the trust is guiding them below ground to Ankh-Morpork. When we saw the intro of the book where she's in the desert, I was like hoping this would be a plot point that was like way more forward throughout the book than it was, because I think just... The mystery of it was so intriguing to me. And it was like, okay, I don't know. Yeah. The little bits of it we get, I really like. I mean, it does come back, like, in full force at the end. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, like, a criticism of this whole novel is that it's kind of backloaded. Like, not Mm -hmm. a lot happens for the first two thirds. Then everything happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the last half of the book, things are changing very quickly. There's a lot of stuff that does still happen in the earlier parts of the story. It's just like a comparative to the end. It feels like nothing's happening. Yeah. And I think part of that might be uh, like exaggerated by the front half of the book. We're getting a lot of like world building stuff about how does the bank work? How does the mint work? How do people interact with money in Ankh-Morpork? And that's a lot of like explaining things. And it's done much more interesting than being like, here's how this thing is handled in very explicit, like, non-conversational uh, tones. But things aren't necessarily changing when all of that is going on. Also, just like during that, like the first half of the story, we get several extended bits with Heretofore, who just sort of drops out of the narrative, like, halfway through. Yeah, I was ex- definitely expecting him to be part of the climax in some significant way, and that just did not happen. <laughs> While that's going on, it seems that the stress of all the recent changes have been taking their toll on Mr. Bent, who, for the first time, makes a mistake with the accounting. Gasp. This causes him to spiral into a nervous breakdown, and he flees. (laughs) Since Mr. Bent had the keys to the majority of the bank facilities, including the vault, Moist and Adora search for a spare set. Investigating the chairman's office, they stumble across the late Mr. Lavish's sex dungeon, which also contains several journals and the other keys they need. Mm -hmm. Mr. Bent is a character that I really disliked at the start of the book that I actually kind of end up coming around to like by the end, at least having some sympathy for him. Definitely, yeah. He starts out just sort of stuffy and resistant to change, but then it's revealed that there's more going on with him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I also do like Miss Drapes. Mm -hmm. I have a soft spot for yearning. It's part of my culture. <laughs> and like she's not in the book a lot, but I think the moments she's in, we get a very clear understanding of like who she is and how she interacts with the world and what she wants. <laughs> she wants to get bent. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> anyway, so with Mr. Bench still missing, Moist soon realizes that the cashier's reverence towards gold led him to hide in the vault. With Gladys's help, he and Adora break in and rescue him, although their actions do draw the attention of the City Watch, which is kind of understandable. Yeah. Their subsequent investigation reveals that all the gold in the vault is gone, replaced with gold-plated lead, and Moist is placed under informal house arrest. <laughs> After more discussion with Hubert and an Uberwaldian beverage from Igor, Moist comes up with a plan. Improvise. <laughs> that seems to be his one and only plan. Yes. You know how I said that Moist is a bottom? If every interaction he has with Adora doesn't prove it, the drink, called Splunt, makes him start verbally key smashing. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand why it's illegal in Uberwald now. Yeah. The next morning, as Cosmo Lavish and a battalion of lawyers arrive at the bank, Moist steps out to greet him. Cosmo reveals to Moist that he's met with Cribbins and learned about Moist's history, which could be very dangerous. However, the confrontation is interrupted by the arrival of Professor Fleed, who made an important discovery in his translation. The legend about these golems uses the word for golden, but in this specific context, it actually means thousand. <laughs> no sooner has this been revealed than all 4,000 golems arrive in the city, where they stand still awaiting orders, although nothing that the citizens seem to say registers with them. Yeah, these golems feel so much more like mystical and terrifying than the golems that we see in Ankh-Morpork do, just because like their scale and their detail and their history and how they like interact with the world. They're just, they feel very strange. They are in many ways less human, right? Because the mm -hmm. golems that we've met so far have been just sort of rough clay, like snowmen almost. Mm -hmm. But these are just like pristine, like sculptures. Mm -hmm. So they probably dive right into the uncanny valley. Yeah, like, I don't know. They're just such a great thing. Like, if there was a adaptation of this, like, uh, like a, vi a movie or TV show adaptation of this, this would be the part I would be most looking forward to, just to, like, see how other people interpret them. Yeah, I could see that. I would personally want to see the glooper in action. <laughs> <laughs> in the subsequent meeting about what to do with the golems, Adora tells Vetinari and the other civic leaders that it's not really possible to free these golems the way they do for more modern ones. And Hubert arrives to explain that actually putting them to work would utterly destroy the labor economy of the city and ultimately lead to economic ruin. Why they can't simply use the golems as a source of basic labor and transition to a post-scarcity communist utopia is presumably obvious. Yeah, Moist ends up taking some of the horse golems to use for the post office, which makes a lot of sense because they can work without needing food or rest like actual horses do. Like there are jobs where, you know, people either don't want to do them or it's really hard for them to do it. And golems are a perfect thing for that, but whatever. 
Moist starts thinking back to the legends of some of these golems, specifically that they were commanded by a priest dressed in gold. So donning his own gold suit, Moist gets Professor Flea to translate a few ba basic commands for him, in return promising to have the ghost reverse exorcised into a strip club. I don't think Moist got permission to do that. No. <laughs> I think he's more of an ask for forgiveness kind of person. Yes, we see that later. <laughs> With his new knowledge, Moist takes command of the Golem army and has them bury themselves in a wasteland just outside the city. He reveals to everyone else his new plan. Instead of gold, the value of Ankh-Morpork's currency will now be based on the value of these golems. That way, nobody gets put out of a job and they also aren't used as an army with which to conquer the world. Yeah, it feels like an answer that makes sense considering the situation. Yeah, it's like it fits a lot with the plot elements that have been established so far. Just like, I personally don't think that capitalism is worth sustaining this hard. Yeah, I think this ultimately feels a little lackluster, even though it does make a lot of sense. It's well executed. Mm -hmm. Maybe a little rushed. Yeah, like, a lot happens in the last half of the book. Yeah. These scenes are, like, all back-to-back, -back and there's, like, no chance to breathe. Mm-hmm. The golems resolved, there's still the matter of the gold. As Vetinari has Moist arrested, Cosmo Lavish instructs his assassin, Cranberry, to kill Mr. Bent. We see Mr. Bent in his apartment, being cared for by Miss Drapes. When he wakes up, he gets something out of his closet that seems to petrify both Miss Drapes and Cranberry. At Moist's trial, he sees Cosmo and Cribbins both in attendance, as well as Putri and the rest of the Lavish family off to the side. During the examination, Moist decides to reveal the whole truth about his past to the entire crowd. The assembled Lavishes start to interject, but are interrupted by the arrival of Mr. Bent, who has embraced his family heritage of clowning. If you ask me to come up with a list of things that I think are part of Mr. Bent's backstory, this would have not been in the like top 100 of the list. Although it does make a little sense, right? Because yeah. He makes such a big deal about being utterly, about his utter contempt for humor. Mm -hmm. Which also still fits with the, the Discworld clowns, because they do not <laughs> do a lot of funny business. Yeah, they're very serious about their job. And hindsight makes total sense. Just would not have been anywhere, like it was nowhere in my brain leading up to this. <laughs> so I did remember that there was a thing going on with him, but like when I was rereading this book for the podcast, mm -hmm. I didn't remember what it was. <laughs> I kind of thought that he was going to turn out to be a golem. <laughs> that would have been a good plot twist. I'm not sure how it'll work, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that would have also made sense, right? Especially if he was like maybe a generation or so after the ones that Adora dug up. Because mm -hmm. there's a reference in there to him needing to believe that you could change yourself. Yeah. Maybe he did like a sort of ship of Theseus thing where he just replaced enough parts that he was no longer the same individual golem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that would have made a lot of sense, like, because these other golems get introduced, but there's no like necessarily like philosophical discussion about how those golems existing and the golems we see existing, like what that means, mm -hmm. you know, because there's something to be said, like the fact that this ancient culture made these golems that what they are is physically a part of them that they cannot change. How would a golem who has freed itself feel about that? Yeah, we don't even get the perspective of a free golem mm -hmm. about them. It, like, it's all the humans discussing them. 
Yeah, so if, like, Mr. Bent was somehow also a golem, then it's like, okay, well, now we have three layers of golemdom, and, like, what does that mean? Yeah, so Mr. Bent hits the lavishes with cream pies, and he throws one at Vetinari, but Moist leaps in front of the patrician and takes it right in the face. (laughs) Miss Drapes arrives with a stack of ledgers and reveals the truth. Mr. Bent ran away from the circus as a boy, discovered a talent for numbers, and the Lavish family took him in and took advantage of him, forcing him to cook the books while they stole all the bank's gold. This is corroborated by Pucci, who says that the gold is theirs anyway, and it still exists, just like three-shaped into jewelry and stuff. Mm -hmm. Enraptured by the attention of the courtroom, she obliviously admits to all of her family's crimes, (laughs) largely relying on the defense I believe is legally termed, screw the rules, I have money. (laughs) Yeah. The book makes multiple jokes about how much the Lavish's lawyers are getting paid for doing, like, functionally nothing. This moment proves that they do not earn their pay. Yeah, there's no lawyer who could possibly be paid enough or could charge enough to deal with Poochie in this scenario. The Watch cannot deal with her. Like, they cannot get a word in edgewise to read her her rights. They have to write it down. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Cosmo's outrage has exacerbated the gangrene in his finger, and he becomes lost in his delusion of being Lord Vetinari. Upon realizing what is happening, Moise guides Cosmo outside and removes his glove, letting the sunlight superheat the Stygium ring and both amputate and cauterize the affected digit. It was real gross. Mm-hmm. I don't think their finger is described in much detail, but, like, everything we get is nauseating. Yeah, like, it's real gruesome for not describing things super explicitly. With the lavish family ruined, Vetinari adopts Mr. Fusspot, while Moist returns to work at the bank, and Adora promises to keep him on a tighter leash. Cribbins tries to extort Moist for the money that Cosmo promised him, but he's killed by his own dentures. As for Cosmo, he wakes up in the Lord Veterinary Wing of the Mental Hospital, among all the people who believe themselves to be the patrician, a place where he as the real veterinary can safely recover from injury. Alright, so that was Making Money. What did you think? This is not one of my favorite Discworld books. Like, it's fine, but I don't know. I didn't love it. Fair enough. I... I did enjoy it, but, like, it does drag early on, and, like, so much happens at the middle. Would have been probably nice to space things out, or, like, structure things a little bit more cleanly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, like, I don't even necessarily have any specific notes about what I don't like about it. Like, I think things feel a little disjointed at times. But otherwise, like, I don't have any, like, super specific explicit complaints. I just, I don't know. It just doesn't do it for me. <laughs> Some discussion points. We get more insight into Lord Vetinari than I think we have in any other single book. Although I feel like I've said that about, like, at least one other story. (laughs) Certainly he has more fun than he's had since probably Jingo, especially in the Blind Letter Office. Mm -hmm. For those who don't know, in the real world, any mail with no valid address that cannot be returned to the sender is usually open to try and determine the intended recipient, and if that doesn't work out, they generally get destroyed after a while. But from what we see of the blind letters, it's typical that the sender has spelled out the name phonetically and usually written a description of the place rather than like a street address. That's how Vetinari figures out a specific bakery from the prompt 
does Bun's opposite pharmacy. Mm -hmm. It's also shown that he enjoys the crossword. And I think this is where the person who writes them, a lady who works part-time in a shop, is introduced as his greatest intellectual rival. <laughs> yeah, there's so much in here that makes so much sense for who Veterinari is. Like, oh yeah, of course he would love these kinds of puzzles. And of course he'd be really good at them. <laughs> and thinking about the people who are good at crosswords, of course it would be some random lady in a shop. Yeah. <laughs> All very good. <laughs> but perhaps the greatest moment is when Veterinari pressures Moist into revealing the secret of how he controlled the golems, only to reveal that he, Veterinari, had already figured it out. And like how during that exchange... Veterinary gives Moist the sword cane that he confiscated from Cosmo. Like, because Moist is very much like, I don't want to say a gentle soul necessarily, but he is not a fighter. And yeah. just holding a weapon makes him nervous. Yeah, Veterinary very clearly understands who Moist is. And he knows that, like, Moist is no physical threat to him. Mm -hmm. Also, there's a brief aside where Moist meets the on-site kitchen staff, including a chef who's allergic to the word garlic and throws a knife whenever he hears it. I believe that this comes up like once later when Adora mentions it to him, but is dropped. And I would definitely have expected that to be a rule of thirds scenario, you know? Yeah, that would have been like a great setup for it. Like, Moist suspects Mr. Bent of being a vampire, right? Mm -hmm. What if Cosmo had thought the same thing? And told that to the assassin, then if the attempted assassination took place in the bank itself, the assassin could have gotten disarmed by Miss Drapes or one of the other cashiers. If he said, give me back that garlic, and then just fallen over with a knife in his back. Right? Mm -hmm. Contrived? Yes. It would have made that character detail relevant to the story in an amusing way. Yeah, because otherwise, like, the chef isn't relevant to the story at all. Like, those scenes could have just been cut. So yeah. having some follow through on that would have been very good. Yeah. And also just like, it's not really clear how Mr. Bent and uh, Miss Drapes managed to defeat Cranberry. And it's like, yeah. although it might be relevant that Mr. Bent lodges with Miss Kate, who we haven't seen in ages. And we actually also get to see her daughter, Ludmilla, whom we met back in Reaper Man. Yeah, it was fun to see them come back in. It was a brief moment, but it was fun. Yeah. When I was in college, part of what I like some of my classes focused a lot on advertising and how like in episode or in movie uh, advertising works and people are far more forgiving of it when it feels relevant to the plot so having all these other discworld characters come back in for things where it feels like yeah that would make sense for them to be there because of course mr bent needs somewhere to live and if he's just going to be lodging with somebody, why not have it be Mrs. Cake? You know, she does that anyways. And then it supports that, yeah, he's a bit of a strange character. And it also leads the audience to assume that he might be undead in some respects. Since anyone yeah. who remembers Mrs. Cake would definitely remember that she tends to house the undead. Yeah, it's like there are a lot of things that are all leading to supporting this vampire thing. And it makes a lot of sense. Like when we got to the point in the book, I was like, yeah, you know what? He could be a vampire. But was there anything else you wanted to go over? I find it a very cute detail that Veterinari adopts Mr. Fusspot at the end because it's mentioned, I think, in this book that his old dog died at some point. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, well, he clearly has a fondness for these little dogs, so. Yeah. And then he finds this little dog whose owner passed away, and it's like, oh, well, I'll take the little dog. Yeah, and like, Veterinari leaves a dog treat on Waffles' grave, and that's just the saddest thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, he clearly misses his dog. But at least he has a new little dog. 
So, for each Discworld book, I like to try and distill the message of the story into a thesis statement. Uh, for this one, I think it's rather clearly spelled out that value is not in any material good, but in the social order, in the promises we make to other people. I just consider it unfortunate that the narrative defines value in terms of, like, labor, rather than just beings have inherent worth that should not be diminished by a system that rejects anyone who's not capable of producing money. Yeah, especially because this book focuses exclusively on characters and their relationships with other people. Like, obviously, there's Adora and Moist, but then there's also Miss Drapes and Mr. Bent, and Hubert and Igor and Owlswick. Like, you know... They are just all existing together and choosing to exist together. And there's value in that, you know, just seeing and respecting other people. And I think that's the message we should take from at least this episode. Mm -hmm. But before we wrap up, I want to give the usual thank yous. First to Willow Carter for our theme music. To you, Liz, for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. And of course, to all of our lovely listeners. If you enjoyed the show, you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and you can join our Discord server to chat with us and a couple other fun people. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a review on iTunes, maybe a comment on the YouTube versions, which go up on my channel, or just share it around with your friends. And of course, for those who are so inclined, we do have a Patreon, and each episode we give a shout out to one randomly selected patron this month we salute robin yeah thanks robin thank you for continuing to support us and of course the reading of the fan vote for the favorite footnote the people of Ankh-Morpork took a straightforward approach to writing which could be summarized as if i know what i mean so should you as a result the post office was used to envelopes addressed to my bruffer john tall by the bridge or mrs smith what des dolly sisters the keen and somewhat worrying intellects employed by the blind letter office enjoyed the challenge, and during their tea break, they played chess in their heads. <laughs> That's it for this month. Join us again next time for Unseen Academicals. Until then, the, the turtle, turtle moves. moves.